Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We have made it almost to the weekend, and in my uh, newsletter morning shots, I, I just ran through a series of stories that you probably ought to keep your eye on. I mean, the world richest man begins mass layoffs at Twitter, which may actually be illegal because you're supposed to give a 60-day warning before mass layoffs. And of course, this comes the day after uh, the world's richest man figured out that he wanted to shake down people for $8 a month for a meaningless blue check. New poll out, nearly 9 in 10 Americans are concerned the political divisions have intensified to the point there's an increased risk of politically motivated violence. More than 6 in 10 Americans are very concerned. Meanwhile, the strange economic news continues. Employers added 261,000 jobs in October, a sign the economy is resilient. Meanwhile, uh, the House Republicans are not even waiting for the midterm elections to release a 1,000-page roadmap for Biden FBI probe. We talked about this on the podcast yesterday with Bart Gelman, that we're about to see a probe palooza followed by an impeachment palooza from the House GOP. Meanwhile, the former guy, Donald Trump, says that Congress should impeach Mitch McConnell. I just I'm, I'm going to get the, the popcorn out for all of this. I'm not exactly sure how the Congress will impeach Mitch McConnell, but clearly he's warming up for what's going to be a lively uh, 2023. Uh, Oprah snubs her old pal, Dr. Oz, and endorses John Fetterman for the U.S. Senate. I'd actually forgotten, believe it or not, because there's just so much going on, that Dr. Oz became a thing because of Oprah. And apparently she's feeling a little bit of, you know, some regret, like we many of us have also felt, and, and going to do something about it. And meanwhile, uh, another ominous indication of what might be coming, this new Wall Street Journal poll finding Republican opposition to helping Ukraine is growing. 48% of Republicans say that we're doing too much to support Ukraine. This is something we've been warning about for some time. Given the Republican id, the MAGA hostility to Ukraine, uh, the fascination with uh, the pro-Putin wing of the party, and the entertainment wing of the Republican Party being all in in opposition to Ukraine. So uh, to hash all of this out, our colleague Bill Crystal. Uh, good morning, Bill. Good morning, Charlie. That's a pretty impressive amount of hash there we have to get through here. Well, and of course, there's this election next. next yeah, week. we don't even have to talk about that. That's going to happen, you know. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is going to happen. And a week from now, we will be so much smarter than we are right now. So let's start with this with uh, Ukraine, uh, because I think this is really ominous. Uh, you know, we, we, we've had indications for some time that the Republican support, while it looked pretty solid, might be shaky. You had Kevin McCarthy indicating, hey, we're not going to be giving a blank check. And then was this yesterday, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who apparently traveling the country because she's now such a rock star. She's at a rally in Sioux City, Iowa. And this is what Marjorie Taylor Greene had to say yesterday. Democrats have ripped our border wide open, but the only border they care about is Ukraine, not America's southern border. Under Republicans, not another penny will go to Ukraine. Mm. Our country comes first. Yeah, so Bill Crystal, how alarmed should we be about this? I mean, I've probably underestimated, though I shouldn't have after these last five, six years, mm -hmm. the degree to which the MAGA right could drive, let's say, normal Republican public opinion, as that journal poll suggests. Um, even Trump hasn't been that outspoken on Ukraine, and yet 
here we are, almost half of Republicans being, what, very skeptical or hostile to aid to Ukraine. Tom Cotton came out this morning and said, no, Republicans are going to continue arming the Ukrainians and, and helping Ukraine. And I think that's there's enough in the, of the Republican conference, certainly the Republican conference in the Senate, and I think enough Republicans in the House that there's no real threat to Biden's ability to continue you know, doing what he has been doing, which I think is pretty good on Ukraine. But on the other hand, you know, those numbers have been moving. Could they continue to move? Could the Marjorie Taylor Green wing of the House cause a lot of trouble? I don't think they literally can cut off the aid, but can they create a situation a little bit like the Democrats in 07, 08 with Iraq? They didn't ever cut off Bush's ability to continue in Iraq and indeed to, to surge troops in Iraq. But they certainly conveyed the sense that we were going to get out of there sooner rather than later. And that turned out to be true. I mean, so could the Republicans uh, make it harder for us to go to the Europeans and say, don't worry, we're there, we're, we're, we're solid? I mean, that part is dangerous. It would be nice if Kevin McCarthy said something, uh, like what Tom Cotton said, that no, 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 Marjorie Taylor Greene, she has a right to her, her opinion, but she does not speak for the Republican conference on this. But of course, Kevin McCarthy is pathetically cowardly, and who knows what he even believes anymore. I mean, that is what strikes me, right? He he had Marjorie Taylor Greene with him when he announced that fake Republican yep. agenda. What was that, four, six weeks ago or something in mm -hmm. Pittsburgh, as I recall? When the Democratic progressives, 30 of them, signed a letter saying, oh, not so much Ukraine, to the Democratic Party's credit, and they do have the presidency, so it helps, but, you know, clearly calls were made by Nancy Pelosi and, for all we know, by the Biden White House and others. And that letter was first, everyone immediately distanced themselves from it, and then it, they ended up retracting it. So, you know, it would be nice if anyone in the Republican Party uh, more people have more of a sense of responsibility on a serious matter of foreign policy. It's one thing to investigate Hunter Biden. I'm not you know, crazy about that, but whatever. I mean, that's that's going to happen, right? right? And that's what parties do when they control Congress and, and the other parties in the White House. And so whatever. But really, on Ukraine, a fundamental matter, you know, real inflection point in, in, in post-Cold War foreign policy, it's unbelievably irresponsible that more people aren't speaking up to explain the case for helping Ukraine to our own voters and reassure our allies abroad and the Ukrainians, which is awfully important going forward. Well, you look at the, you look at the trend line as well, and Aaron Blake from the Washington Post uh, laid this out. The percentage of Republicans who say that we're doing too much to support Ukraine back in March, it was only six percent of Republicans. By May, it had risen to seventeen percent. In September, it was thirty-two percent, and now it's forty-eight percent. So you see where it is going. And the real world effect of this, you know, whatever the votes eventually are, has got to be to embolden Vladimir Putin. I mean, look, you know that in the Kremlin, he is sitting there. He is looking at these numbers. He is listening to this. I'm guessing that Marjorie Taylor Greene's soundbite would be played on Russian state television. We're going into a very difficult uh, winter. This war is far from over. And um, any prospect that... Uh, Vladimir Putin would feel, well, I'm cornered. Um, I need to, you know, cut some sort of a deal. I need to withdraw. No, it's, it's undermined by this because this has to tell him that if he is just patient, if he waits out, that the United States, you know, might crack. And also, don't you think he will take it maybe right after the election if Republicans win the House or soon after the election if Republicans win the House, which does look likely, mm -hmm. he'll do some fake offer of a, you know, let's have a negotiation. Here's a compromise. Yes. We'll just keep three quarters of all the lands we've taken and, and you know, uh, ignore all the war crimes we've committed. And, and Marjorie Taylor Greene will say, why aren't they doing that? And before we know Kevin McCarthy, well, I still think Biden can resist it. And I think uh, enough Republicans will resist it that it's, it's you know, we can keep up the policy. But I agree, it's, it's, uh, it's ominous. And it's ominous. And then when the presidential campaign gets going, uh, which I guess it's going to do in two or three weeks, right? Yep, um, right? Won't the incentives be 
based on that trend line you just laid out for Republican candidates to go in that presidential candidates to go in that direction? Well, exactly. And and this is why I think that, you know, this is to the, to the extent that, that Congress will continue to fund Ukraine, it will have to be on a bipartisan basis because Mitch McConnell will not have 50, 51 votes uh, to pass this uh, in the Republican caucus. He will need Democrats. Same thing with uh, with the House of Representatives, which means that there's going to be a really intense civil war among Republicans. You already have Trump saying that Mitch McConnell should be thrown out. He should be impeached. So every vote on this will become more fuel for the bubbling cauldron of outrage uh, out there. Uh, so this will split the Republican Party, I think, rather significantly, and it will obviously play out in presidential politics. I mean, how that ends up, I don't know. But I think we can see where the beating heart of the Republican Party is right now, because I guess everything flows downhill. So, the, the, you know, I always sort of let now look at the fever swamps and see something bubbling up over in the fever swamp. And if you just wait long enough, that becomes the mainstream. And this has been the pattern over the last two years, hasn't it? Where crazy stuff that's out there, the most bizarre, outlandish positions, whether it's replacement theory or election denialism, etc., you know, just give it a few months and then you wake up one day and you find out that it's kind of a litmus test for Republicans and it's become the mainstream of the Republican Party. I mean, isn't that what we've learned in the last two years? Yeah, and what we've learned in the last two years, really the last six years also, is that there's one person who really can take something that's bubbling and sort of making it into the mainstream, but there's still some shying away from it and make it just dispositively a must-believe for any Republican who wants to have a future, and that's Donald Trump. And that's why I do think the the these are two different issues, Ukraine and Trump's presidential candidacy, they're being reported as two different issues, and they are two different issues to right. some degree, but they really intersect in this way. Trump will have a huge incentive, I think, if he looks at Pence, who's pro-aid to Ukraine, if maybe DeSantis, I don't know, he's not, he's a governor, he hasn't said much, but in, in the House, he was a more normal internationalist uh, Republican, even Pompeo has been uh, for that. And Trump sees, how do I discredit these guys who want to be mini-me's, mini-Trumps, you know, how do, and how do I discredit Pence, which he's happy to do anyway, and how do I frame the race in a way that locks in everyone on, on the MAGA side and behind me, and that seems to be an increasing number, as you were just saying, from the trend lines, I've got to think Trump will be tempted when he announces two weeks after the election to make, maybe to put Ukraine even front and center, even though he hasn't been that front and center on it. And then you're in a different world, the most recent ex-president making this a litmus test not just, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene. I think that's very likely to happen. And, you know, let's, so let's keep our powder dry on on that because we, we haven't even gotten through the midterm and right. we're going to have this um, very, very short interregnum before the presidential campaign starts. Uh, Axios reporting that uh, Trump is going to announce on November 14th. We have plenty of time to speculate about who's going to run, whether there's any way to stop him from getting the nomination again. You know, I had one thought yeah. on the November 14th, if I can interrupt for a second. Does the date occur to me? If I were Trump, what is that, the Monday after the election, after the yeah. election day on the next, so it's uh, less than a week and a half from now. Yeah. Oh, my God. Monday. But, you know, I thought, yeah. oh my God. why don't you announce on election day? This, I think, is a rather clever idea, which I'm worried about putting out because maybe Trump will, is listening to this and will we'll, we'll do it. But, you know, if you can imagine midday on Tuesday, November 8th, Trump announces just by a tweet or something. I mean, he doesn't have to do anything. And I mean, everyone will say, oh, how foolish Trump, he doesn't understand politics. He's like, it's a different news cycle. Of course, it would become a huge story on the one night when normal Americans are actually paying attention to politics, right? It would hover over everything. If the Republicans do 
well, and I'm less confident mm-hmm. of that or, or or fearful of that than most people, but whatever, they'll do pretty well. They most likely win the house, at least. Mm-hmm. Trump gets to sort of take credit in real time if Carrie Lake wins in Arizona. There, his person is winning the night, the day, on the night of the day that he's announced his candidacy. So I'm a little worried that Trump could even think, I mean, he probably won't because it's too, it is a little too, maybe too confusing just to announce it the same mm. on election day itself. But I don't know. Why isn't that a non-crazy idea? Actually, <laughs> when you, when you started talking, I thought this is a crazy idea. And, but, but you persuaded me that actually there is, there's real method here. Maggie Haberman, I think was on CNN and noted that, you know, conservative media has kind of pivoted away from Trump, that Fox News never mentions him. You don't think that Donald Trump knows this? So, you know, obviously his job number one is to stay relevant. You know, I mean, his view of every news cycle is, is it about me or not? Are they talking about me or not? So the idea that Republicans would triumph without him standing up and saying, me, me, me. Yeah, no, I I, I really get that. I, I could see the appeal that it would have for him, that he may officially announce a week from Monday, but he might say something next Tuesday or Wednesday to basically say, look, this is all about Donald Trump winning. And it's obviously very important for him because he's obsessed with shaking the fact that he's been a big loser, right? I mean, the big thing that's been hung over his head is, you know, you are a one-term defeated, disgraced ex-president who also managed to lose control of both the House and the Senate. So for him to be able to stand up and say, see, I am I am not a loser, I am a winner, and look, you know, we're going to have the trifecta here. I, I can see the appeal. And I'm feeling nauseous about it already. So yeah. is it is it too early to start day drinking? I don't know. No, never, never. Never too early. I bet. Yeah. Not, never never day drinking. Right? <laughs> no. Um, okay. So um, on, I have one more sound bite that I just wanted to share because, and then this is not breaking news, but the just watching what this whole political season has done to people. And I, I, I continue to be, have a morbid fascination with the devolution of the mind of J.D. Vance, who I would like to remind people used to be a serious person who wrote best-selling books, who wrote for the New York Times, who you know would show up at things like you know the Aspen Ideas Festival to you know to talk about you know the forgotten American, and this is what he is reduced to going on Fox News. This was this is J.D. Vance talking about his Democratic opponent Tim Ryan last night. If you look at his views on, for example, flooding America with illegal aliens and then using American tax dollars to fund gender reassignment surgeries for those aliens, that's exactly what Tim Ryan has proposed doing. It's 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 kind of like right wing Mad Libs at this point, right? Yeah, right. It's just like it's just these ideas are out there: the borders, crime, gender reassignment, grooming. Just you just throw all that shit together, and it just comes out JD Vance's mouth. The transgender caravans are going to be really something to, you know, quite a spectacle at the border, I suppose. The transgender caravans, yes, you know, all waving CRT books or something like that. Here in Virginia on CRT, I don't know if how much national use the yeah. Scott. If I can, the uh, Glenn Youngkin, having campaigned on it, set up a, a tip line, a complaint line yeah. for critical race theory for parents to call in. They've stopped. They ended the the the, the line on September 30th because there were so few calls coming in and. So it was, <laughs> it was yeah. not much. I mean, there was like three there. schools where they were teaching sort of stupid stuff and inappropriate stuff. But it is kind of amazing. But reality doesn't seem to matter. You know, my father famously said he was a neoconservative because he, he was a liberal who'd been mugged by reality. I don't know. No one seems to get mugged by reality these days. And yeah. reality is just for ignore cops. it, right? Reality, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That really is true, you know.
So we are both of an age that we remember in real time the whole Pauline Kale story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I wrote about her, don't be Pauline Kale. Although what I should have written, as soon as I pressed send, I realized that I, the, the headline should have been, we are all Pauline Kale these days. Now for, pe pe for the youngs out there, Pauline Kale was a very famous, very prominent movie critic, right? For the New Yorker, I For think, the New Yorker, right. right. The, probably the most famous in America, I would say at that time. There I was would no, say, yeah, yeah she, was, she, was, she was dominant. But she's largely, at least in, in political circles, remembered for something that she allegedly said after the 1972 election. Richard Nixon won this massive landslide. And allegedly, she said that Nixon couldn't have won because she didn't know anybody who voted for him. And that was that was a quip that was recycled in conservative circles for a long time as sort of an example of, you know, um, hermetic liberal provincialism, you know. And yeah. what, what's interesting is as I was looking this up, uh, I, I noticed that the her defenders in the New Yorker were very indignant, very angry, insisting she never actually said this. This is a fraudulent factoid. But what she did say in a speech to the Modern Language Association was, and here's her, her direct quote, I live in a rather special world. I only know one person who voted for Nixon. Where they are, I don't know. They're outside my ken. But sometimes when I'm in a theater, I can feel them. <laughs> so as John Pedora had said, this was, that was actually even worse than what had been attributed because it indicates that Kale was actually acknowledging her provincialism, living in a special world, and from its perch, expressing her distaste for the unwashed masses with whom she sometimes had to share a movie theater. What this indicates is that even then, liberal provincialism was as proud of its provincialism as any Babbitt. And it strikes me that the reason we remember that was because she basically said, I'm in a bubble and I have no idea who these people are. And yet, Bill, I'm sensing that almost everybody lives in that bubble. We, we're kind of all Pauline Kale. So, so next week, if there's a Senator, you know, Herschel Walker and Blake Masters and Carrie Lake, we're all going to look at each other and, and say, who are these people? I don't know any of these people, right? So we're all in this mutual incomprehension. Yeah, and I think MAGA world is if there's a senator, which I think there could well be actually, Mark Kelly reelected and 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 Raphael Warnock reelected. MAGA world's going to say, who are those people? Like, did, yeah. did we didn't know people moved to Atlanta and that there's now a much younger and more diverse electorate there, and we didn't know exactly. that Phoenix is mm -hmm. full of people who don't like Trumpism. So I, yeah, the whole country is so. As, as, I mean, the reason the polling hill thing I think was funny, and I, I always wondered whether she was saying it somewhat ironically or self knowingly, mm -hmm. you know, and then I guess. That quote, of course, isn't so great about the unwashed masses being near in the theater, but it shows that she understood in a way that she was in a bubble. But at the time, it seemed weird to be in a bubble. I mean, I think you and I remember this. That is, we were all in bubbles, of course. We knew that. I grew up on the west side of Manhattan. I didn't think the rest of the country was like that. But when I came to Washington in 1985, more than half the states had a Republican senator and a Democratic senator. I think this number is correct. Hmm. The 26 states had one Republican and one Democrat. So in the case of New York, it was Moynihan and D'Amato, but it was certainly true in many states, right? And Wisconsin had that at, at many times too, I think, didn't they? Mm -hmm. And now six states have a Republican and a Democratic senator, 44 really? are, are all Republican and all Democrat, and that, yes. that's 22 each, but that's 50-50 mm -hmm. Senate. And almost all those 22 states also voted for the candidate of that party for president and also have a governor. 
of that party. So, I mean, the truth is we are really much more siloed than we were in 1972 when you could joke about being siloed, you know, and this is a, a geographical phenomenon, sorting phenomenon, socioeconomic phenomenon, and a social media phenomenon, and a Fox News, MSNBC phenomenon, and a lot of it's beyond anyone's control, to be fair. It's not like people have necessarily chosen this as a, you know, the way to go to organize the country, but I think it is a striking phenomenon, though. Well, it is. And and I think this is going to be something that we're going to have to wrestle with, um, you know, particularly with 2024, you know, hanging over our heads right now is that is that if there is this Republican sweep in both the House and the Senate, and you're somewhat more optimistic, I think, than others, and that we are looking at some of these deplorables winning, we're going to have to take kind of a deep breath. And, you know, unless you're going to engage in election denialism, we have to acknowledge that most of those people will be elected democratically, with the exception of the voter intimidation thing, right? I totally. Mean, no, and I think I think this is a very important point you're making, which has a, this co- implication that won't Democrats, let's assume it's a mixed bag and, and, and whatever, you know, it's, yeah. it's going to be close either way. The truth is the biggest picture point to make about this election is the country is 50-50 divided which it has been in the past, but it's now 50-50 divided between a uh, Democratic Party that's pretty much where it was two or four or six years ago, honestly, I would say, Mm -hmm. and a Republican Party that is much more extreme than it was even in 2020. And so that's, for me, the biggest story, that the Republican Party has become more Trumpist, more extreme, more conspiratorial, more chuckling at violence against 82-year-old men and so forth, and they're paying no price. So that's a worrisome thing about the country. But don't you think that one consequence of this is if you're an actual Democrat who wins in a swing state, if Tim Ryan wins, or honestly, even if he loses by a point or two in a Mm -hmm. state like Ohio, which Trump carried by eight, if Gretchen Whitmer wins by six points in Michigan, don't people think, gee, that's the kind of Democrat, we do need to have Democrats who can win states like that. I, I don't know how much effect that has. The Democratic Party has its own dynamics. Maybe they all decide, you know, what we need is just more progressivism and more, you know, we're not, we weren't woke enough here in 2022. I kind of think, though, the dynamic in the Democratic Party could go much more in the who in the Democratic Party can speak to these voters we, we really desperately need. Oh, and they urgently need to have that discussion. Look, I, I know I've, I've been beating on this drum of, you know, the, the same drum that Rui Teixeira has been beating on, which is like, look, understand that, you know, the key to the future rests with Democrats who can win in these swing areas, not the AOCs of, of the world. And I, and I think th- this is what's important. And I, and I hope that is the discussion um, that, you know, the, the, the Tim Ryans who've run effective races or the Gretchen Whitmer who ran an effective race. And also to ask this really important question, that given how crazy and extreme and reckless and irresponsible and content-free the Republican Party in terms of policy, the Republican Party has become, Democrats really have to ask themselves this really tough question. Why can't we beat these guys? Why can't we beat the most reckless, woolly, conspiracy theory-laden party out there? What are we doing wrong? What you know what I'm getting at here? I mean, at yeah. a certain point, this needs to be a very urgent question. You know, that you're looking at a party that is going to be empowering Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, and Matt Gates and Jim Jordan. And yeah, it's deplorable, but Democrats have to ask themselves, what kind of political malpractice leads to the point where we can't beat these guys? And the people we're talking to, and this might be a good like agenda yeah. for the podcast for the next two months, are the Democrats who either will have won and survived um, uh, or gain votes conceivably as in Ohio, or will lose in, in on Tuesday in districts where they ended up getting pulled down, not by their own deeds, but by the parties. In Virginia, here where I live, 
both Elaine Lurie and Abigail Spanberger are in very, very tight races. I mean, I w- they would be worth talking to. They actually will have campaigned for the last two months, the last year, really, and will have lived the experience of having been, uh, had this, uh, not being able to convince voters of having pretty wacky Republican opponents and having paid a price for what other Democrats and others on the left have done. So I think talking to the Spanbergers and Lurias and Slotkins of the world, whether they win or lose, because they're going to be in close races yeah. either way, will be very important, I think, for the future of the Democratic Party, whether they'll have that discussion or whether they'll just be a kind of denial or circling of the wagons or now let's get to work on the Biden reelect. You know, that was a depressing piece the other day on the Washington Post, like 40 DNC, Democratic National Committee staffers have been working on the Biden reelect. Really? Maybe they could go to Georgia and, 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 mm. and Nevada and Arizona and Pennsylvania and actually make sure, try to make sure that election deniers do not become governor. Maybe that, that could have been a little more of a priority for for the party and helped Tim Ryan in Ohio where they did almost nothing. So did very little. So I don't know, which is bizarre. I mean, I just feel like it's not the best organized and most focused party in the world, but maybe they'll, maybe they'll do okay anyway. Well, and the reason why this is an urgent conversation is because if in fact these crackpots do win democratically, if this is the choice of the voters, you know, we have to figure out what the hell happened to those voters because they could do even worse in 2024, which, you know, again, brings you back to Pauline Kale, where you can go, I have no idea what happened there. You know, the economy is wonderful. Crime is non-existent. That, what problem at the border? At some point, there's going to have to be some reckoning with all of that. And I understand that what's happened is that I think there's been kind of a bubble formed around Democrats where they can turn on cable shows and read websites and people will reassure them, oh, don't worry about the crime issue. The crime issue is not that bad. Here's a chart showing it's not really there. When the reality is that every public opinion poll will say that people are very concerned about inflation. They're very concerned about the economy. They are very concerned about crime and about illegal immigration. And if you do not aggressively address those questions and deal with the problem that your party has in addressing those questions, then however bad 2022 is going to be, it's going to be much more dire in 2024. Yeah, and having the White House makes it harder to do that because I think no one wants to be disloyal. And so, quote, addressing the questions might suggest that, you know, the Biden White House has to be perfect in doing so. I mean, if can they make an adjustment as the Clinton administration did after 94? One forgets the first two years, there was all Hillary's health care plan. I, I spent, you and I spent a fair amount of time criticizing that, as I recall. That went down, that disappeared. Then suddenly we were doing welfare reform and Clinton was, you know, intervening in Bosnia and it was a whole different uh, look for the Clinton administration and, and Republicans overplayed their hand, which could well happen again. I, I do think this is where I, I've been thinking about a lot about Biden recently, whether he should run or not, which I've always been very skeptical that he should just because I think it's honestly just be too old Mm. in two years, let alone six years. But I also think the chance for a fresh look, for fresh thinking of the kind you and I have been calling for, implies to me that that unlike Clinton, who was a young man and who was able to pivot and was good at it, I mean, I just think they need fresh faces here at the top of the Democratic Party. And Pelosi's going to step down. You can sell this legitimately as a generational turnover, which is a good thing, you know? But part of that generational turnover has to be, and this new generation is in touch with more of America than perhaps, unfortunately, the older generation was. 
I don't disagree with you. I just am trying to figure out who that would be. And, and, well, that's and whether, a little and, problem. And when, if you're going to get all pedantic <laughs> and, you know, kind of, I mean, this is what happens. You know, people like Charlie come along and raise these kind of Give me a name. Questions. Give me a name. Yeah, a name. Yeah, I could give you a few, but whatever. This is why we have a healthy process that will just, that will churn up these people, you know? So you and I haven't spoken since the attack on Paul Pelosi, and I continue to regard this as just one of the darkest, you know, moments in a series of dark moments. And now you have this new Washington Post poll out showing that basically 90% of Americans have decided that, hey, you know, we are kind of concerned about the threat of political violence. And I have to tell you, nothing that happened this week has reduced that threat in any way, as far as I can see. What do you think? Well, I think you've been excellent in the newsletters uh, on the Pelosi question, I mean, on the reaction to the attack and how horrifying it is that people don't feel they need to say this is terrible. And we obviously have sympathy for Mr. Pelosi, and uh, but also that we need to, we're going to tell anyone who's misunderstanding our own messages, this is what you would say if you're a Republican politician, mm-hmm. to think that you're entitled to use violence against elected officials or anyone else. That is wrong. I mean, that's what would have been said. And to be fair, that's what the Democrats, I mean, Biden said it after the shooting of Steve Scalise. And it's what everyone should be saying. And the fact that so few have stepped up to say it, or they said it so grudgingly, or like Glenn Youngkin, there was one sentence buried in the midst of a, we're sending Nancy Pelosi home, that no one even thought that you would pause the attack ads on Pelosi, some of which have fairly violent sort of adjacent language, you might say, in them. I mean, uh, it's really, I, I agree. I've been also a little rattled by the reaction to Pelosi, but I've been worried all along. And I'm worried, incidentally, I mean, I suppose if they win on election night, Carrie Lake and others, they won't, uh, you know, there'll be less potential for violence. But if Carrie Lake is ahead when we go to sleep at 11 p.m. midnight in Arizona and uh, she's fallen behind because they they count all the early vote or late votes come in and so forth, um, or the same might happen in Pennsylvania with Oz, I am very worried about violence. Next week, not just individual attacks on people, that's bad too, but I'm worried that, you know, Carrie Lake will say this is an outrage, I'm, they're, they're stealing the election, you need to show them they can't do this, and 10,000 armed people will descend on the convention center or wherever they're counting the ballots in Phoenix, and, you know, and then people will counter-mobilize. And, I and- do not find that far-fetched at all, and this is a, a, a good moment to just remind people, and, you know, this, what, what do we call it? The red mirage um, fa- yeah. factor, which we talked about endlessly and was reported endlessly in 2020. And yet it didn't make a difference. The red mirage being, look, if, if, if the early votes, the day of votes will favor Republicans. Um, they will do very, very well. Those votes tend to be counted uh, quickly. In many states, the early votes are counted later. Like, for example, in Wisconsin and in Pennsylvania, that's just the way it is. It is set up. So well, did it be set up? Yeah. Right. Continued to be set up, which means they are inviting the kind of misunderstanding that you're about to explain. Right. Well, exactly. So early on, yes, you will have Republicans in the lead or potentially in the lead in places like Arizona, in Wisconsin and in Pennsylvania. And then as the completely legal votes are counted in a completely legal and predictable way, that lead will diminish. And what Donald Trump has figured out is that if you simply declare victory when you are ahead and make it look like there's something nefarious when the later votes come in, then you can convince millions of people that the election is being stolen. And as you point out, in a place like Arizona, where we've already seen, you know, armed masked people show up at drop boxes, it is not at all far fetched 
the scenario you just laid out, that people would descend upon the counting centers and saying, you know, stop the count, stop the steal. Um, we're going to fight for our democracy. And God knows what happens then. So if we've learned anything, it's that even when we're alarmed, we are perhaps insufficiently alarmed. Isn't that one of the lessons we learned? Totally. And uh, I, I think so. Yes. As someone who was so alarmed and, and I think was right to have been alarmed and as you say, probably insufficiently alarmed. And what we were most, just to get back to the sort of big picture of the forest, not the trees of the last years, we were alarmed. The reason we were all anti-Trump, people would say, oh, why are you never Trump? You just didn't like him or you didn't agree with him on trade policy. I mean, the reason we were never Trump is that we thought this kind of thing could happen after four or six years of Trump. And it's happened. It may have happened even in a worse way than honestly that I expected in terms of the permeating of the Republican Party and therefore of the country to some degree of, you know, really dangerous hatreds and passions and demagoguery and, and resentments and so forth, feelings of victimization, which then legitimize anything. And then, of course, the conspiracies and the lies, which that part, I got to say, I didn't even quite expect. If you were talking about no. the kinds of the conspiracy theories and bubbles, the big lie being so pervasive, the big lie then, of course, being used to to promote election subversion going forward. It's not just a lie going back about things that happened in the past. You know, it's a little worse than I expected, which is why we were never Trump, but it's even worse, as you say. And Trump's going to go to Pennsylvania on Saturday. That's his final rally. And Mastriano is so far back, it's hard to believe that there's a real chance to do that much trouble in that race. But if Oz Fetterman is very close, Trump is already laying the groundwork in Pennsylvania, and he's looking ahead to his own presidential bid, obviously, uh, for a kind of... Uh, chaos, uh, uncertainty, uh, some violence, and that all helps him going forward. I mean, that is to say, that's the world he wants to exist in 2023 and 2024 for his presidential campaign. Pat Toomey should stand up on Saturday and say, Trump's coming to my state. I'm not going to be there, but I'm going to say this. We need to be responsible on Tuesday night. We need to let the votes be counted. The state legislature's decided to count the early vote later. That's fine, but then we need to let that vote happen. Pat Toomey is the current senator, Republican senator from Pennsylvania, but others need to say it too. And are they going to bother saying it or are they just going to be you know, busy you know, cleaning out their offices in the Capitol and, and looking to their next jobs. I don't know. I mean, Rob Portman went to, didn't he go abroad this week to the current Republican senator from Ohio to show support for Ukraine? He's been very strong on the Ukraine issue, but he's supporting J.D. Vance for the Senate. I mean, yeah. the, the Republican, the collapse of the Republican establishment and of conservative elites remains uh, very damaging, I think. Well, I, I agree. And I was, you know, I was thinking about this, that I, I thought, and you did as well, that, that it would be bad you know, a Trump presidency and, and what, uh, you know, Trump dominance would would mean. I thought it would be very bad and continually, you know, over the last few years thought that it was going to be even worse. However, it's gotten so much worse than I expected. And for exactly the reasons that you just mentioned, I mean, the, the speed, uh, the velocity with which the lies are spread and then accepted, the complete collapse of the Republican establishment. By now, this seems like an old story, but it seems to be picking up momentum and so we're talking about, you know, the the lessons that would be learned from a Republican victory next week. Obviously, Vladimir Putin is going to take, you know, a certain solace from from that. And I think it's going to embolden him to continue his campaign of aggression and genocide. But also, I think that unfortunately, you're going to have the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Kerry Lakes and others look at the election results and they will see that as a vindication of their recklessness, that they will, that it will underline the fact that they can laugh about the attack on Paul Pelosi without any consequences, that there are no consequences for the extremism. And, and I think that 
that's something that, as you point out, Donald Trump is basically going to, you know, come swanning in and saying, see, remember all the people who said that if we became, you know, crazy and extreme and bigoted, that it would be electoral disaster? Um, no, follow me and we will win these elections and we're going to continue to win these elections. And I think that's going to be very demoralizing to the handful of of Republicans who, you know, keep their heads down are sort of just hoping that some meteor of death comes and saves them from another Trump regime, right? I mean, they're, they're just so many of them, I'm sure you talk to them, are just kind of waiting for this to pass. A Republican victory is going to reinforce all of those bad tendencies, I think. Especially if the most election-denying Republicans, and many of whom Trump has recruited to run and supported, win. I mean, I, I guess I'd make two points. One, which is separate, is that I also think, of course, Marjorie Shale Green will be emboldened, but a ton of younger people, or not young, just people who are thinking of running in 24, people who are thinking of stepping up from state legislature, what's the lesson they take? The lesson they take is, you know how you succeed in American politics today in the Republican Party? You're Carrie Lake or you're Carrie Lake Jr., right? And so the degree of of, of that and Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and, and everyone else like that. And so the, de the degree to which the party's complexion will continue to change before our eyes, which is the kind of people who will choose not to run in 2024. And I'm not even thinking of incumbents. Some of that will be, there'll be some of that Portman, you know, sass, mm -hmm. uh, Toomey leaving phenomenon, but also the 42-year-old who decides enough, you know what, I'm not going to run that kind of race. I'm going to go into business. I'm going to go back to the family, right. whatever. Why not? And the 42-year-old who's not, you know, in office, who thinks I could be Lauren Boebert, I could be Marjorie Taylor Greene, I, I could figure out how to do that. And I have a little, done it a little bit locally in my Facebook group, and now I'm going to do it big time. So I think the, I think you're, you're very right to focus on the trend, the direction, the velocity of change. You know, it's not a stable situation. It can go more in this direction. The other point I'd make more Trump specific is for Trump, he'll declare victory no matter what happens, of course. Right. And he'll, he'll say he was responsible for everything good that happened. And Mitch McConnell was responsible for everyone who lost and whatever. So, but it, I was like, who, there are a bunch of candidates who really wouldn't be there without Trump. They probably wouldn't have run without Trump and they wouldn't have won their primaries without Trump. So I say that would be Carrie Lake, uh, Oz in Pennsylvania, Herschel mm -hmm. Walker in Georgia. Mm -hmm. You're a fine gubernatorial candidate there in Wisconsin. Who's Tim Michaels. Escaping. Tim Michaels, yeah. right? It was literally a Trump kind of yeah. recruit right. and supported. I mean, if three or f if most of the, if all of them win or most of them win, I think that's a big, I mean, that really helps Trump. I just think Trump says, look, I picked these people early. They won the primaries because of me. Everyone said, oh, well, you're really killing yourself in the general election. The Democrats spent money to help Carrie Lake win the primary because, oh, that's she could never win a general. If she were to win, and I'm not, you know, I think it's 50-50 out there, but if she wins, it so much strengthens Trump's hand and Trump's hand in general in the Republican Party. I think people haven't quite focused on that, but I, I think that's, that's a general phenomenon about who wins and what the general distribution of seats is in the House and the Senate and the governorships, but they're probably, and I'm sure I'm missing some, there are like a half dozen, maybe a dozen particular races, pretty high profile races, where yeah. Trump could say, and he wouldn't be lying, incidentally, I no. picked them. I picked them. People told me this was a mistake. They won the primary. They won the general election. Who's the guy who can deliver in 2024? I mean, he will say that and there'll be some credibility to it. Well, and given how important it is to his persona to be a winner, he's really going to wallow in this. And, and as you point out, he's not he's not going to be wrong about this. So I intend to spend a lot of time thinking about and reading about uh, 1995. Yeah. Next year, you remember this, of course, extremely well when the Republicans swept into power and there was just tremendous optimism of the Republicans, you know, the sense that that the Clinton administration had been completely discredited and he was, you know, he was going to be a one-term president. 
And yet we saw uh, what happened with their overreach. My guess is that the overreach of the next Congress will be exponentially greater and worse than what you saw in 1995. I just don't think they'll be able to help it. Yeah, that sounds right to me, especially the House. And and also Trump's probably going to get indicted. So what happens then? They impeach Merrick Garland the next day. Yeah. They, they, they defund huge, try to defund, they won't succeed in this, but in huge chunks of the Justice Department, the whole investigation of Trump, they'll try to defund. I mean, I think the degree of craziness, AB, our friend A.B. Stoddard made this point in a, mm-hmm. I think on a podcast with you, and then in a piece with uh, a conversation with me, and then in a couple of pieces of the bulwark. I mean, the degree of craziness in 2023, the interaction of Trump possibly being indicted, Trump running for president, Republicans, let's assume, winning the House and being very close in the Senate and and the more extreme parts of the Republican Party being in the driver's seat after the election. I mean, the intersection of all those things, the question of whether Biden's going to run or not, causing and Pelosi stepping down, which means the Democrats are more fractured. I, I mean, it's just going to oh, be... Wow. It's going to be pretty crazy, right? I, I really don't feel <laughs> like, you know, we've, 95 is a good analogy. Mr. Gingrich was a new yeah. speaker. That's nothing you know, compared to this, though. Yeah. Yeah, less than this is going to be. Actually, as you run through it, we're going to think back of 1995 as just a kinder, gentler, much calmer period. <laughs> right. A brief government <laughs> shutdown, a little bit of jousting between Gingrich and Clinton. And, yeah. yeah, right. Exactly. Some some awkward sound bites about the future of Medicare. And that was pretty much it. Actually, I, it's it's hard to come up with a year. We're doing this in advance that we already know that 2023 is going to be one of the most intense, fraught political years ever. And I'm trying to think back and, you know, 1968, I don't know um, what what would be an analogy to what we're about to experience. And of course, we have no idea. Yeah. Which is why we'll keep doing this podcast, don't you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Bill, have a great weekend. I appreciate it every time you come on. No, thanks, Charlie. It was a pleasure. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.